Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. I am Ladaris Cordell. I'm a retired Superior Court judge, and I'm the moderator for today's program. So I'm now pleased to introduce today's speaker, Susanna Kahalen, investigative journalist and author of the new book, The Great Pretender, The Undercover Mission That Changed Our Understanding of Madness. NPR has called Susanna Kahalen one of America's most courageous young journalists. She is well known for her 2012 best-selling memoir, Brain on Fire, which details her becoming gravely ill as a young woman and her admittance to a hospital where she was misdiagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. In her new book, The Great Pretender, Susanna Kahalen explores the centuries-old struggle to define, diagnose, and treat mental illness. She details a groundbreaking 1973 study by Stanford University psychologist David Rosenhan. Following the dramatic study, mental institutions in America and other countries as well, and the diagnoses of mental illnesses were turned on their heads. Susanna's research asks us to delve deeper into the Rosenhan experiment and the lessons it still holds for America in 2019. To discuss her remarkable book and its startling findings, please welcome Susanna Kahalen. Can I say before we begin that um, this is very special for me to be here with you not just because you're such a remarkable person and I'm, I just admire what you do uh, and admire your career, you, Susanna. but because I knocked on your door, what, six years ago, mm-hmm. uh, interviewing you and your partner, Florence Keller, about your friend, David Rosenham. Yes. And I would never, I, I was hoping I had talked to Florence and I knew that she was such a wonderful person, even over the phone. But I, I, I had no idea that this opening that door would open up like a whole family for me on the West Coast. So look what has happened. Yeah, terrific. To, to be here with you is just a complete full circle well, moment for you. me. So thank well, you. The so pleasure much. is mutual, Susanna. Uh, I have to tell you that rarely have I read the preface to a book and just gotten completely hooked. And the Great Pretender had me from the very first sentence. She writes. The story that follows is true. It is also not true. That is a terrific opening line. <laughs> Thank you. So you Thank are you. an investigative journalist whose first book, Brain on Fire, was a bestseller. And now you've authored a second book, another bestseller. So you, my dear, are on a roll. So congratulations <laughs> to you. All right. So let's talk about The Great Pretender. So yes. in medicine, a great pretender is a disorder that mimics the symptoms of various disorders leading doctors to misdiagnose. And that's what happened to you, right? Yes. Tell us. So in 2009, at the age of 24, I was um, kind of hit out of the blue with strange symptoms. It started first with feelings of kind of deep depression. And I actually, at the time, I was working for a a tabloid newspaper called the New York Post, whose um, famous headline is... uh, headless body in topless bar. So it was a strange time to just be alive. But um, 
<laughs> but so at that time, I, I was so enthusiastic. I just started working as a reporter and I was so excited. And, um, it was, I started behaving in ways that seemed uncharacteristic. I was very, very depressed. I couldn't concentrate at work. I became obsessed with this notion that I had bed bugs, which it was 2009 in New York City and everyone had that notion that they had bed bugs. Mm. But, um, I took it to another level, hiring an exterminator where then, when there was no evidence of infestation. And so that's kind of the beginning of this what I would now call kind of beginning stages of my illness. Um, and from there, what happened, um, it escalated very quickly um, from the depression into kind of a mania and then morphed even further into um, full-blown psychosis, hallucinations, delusions. Um, and I was hospitalized ultimately for a month um, where various diagnoses were, were kind of lobbed at me. One of them was bipolar disorder and the next was schizoaffective disorder. Again, that great pretender, as you, as you say. Um, this was kind of pretending. It looked a lot like a serious uh, mental illness. Uh, ultimately, however, I was uh, properly diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. But you were gravely ill, though. I mean, we're talking oh, yes. near death. Yes. I mean, I was, it's hard to even kind of go back because I don't remember so much of that. So in, in writing about that experience and brain on fire, I actually had to use my medical records. And at one point I was, um, but well enough to get neuropsych testing and I was, um, severely impaired. I couldn't read or write. I couldn't, I could hardly walk. So yes, I was, I was very disabled at that point. Wow. So in brain on fire, which I read and I loved it, um, you describe what Dr. Najjar, yes. um, what he did to finally uncover your actual illness. And it was a really a very simple thing. So tell us, what did he do? Yes, yeah, so people love this, uh, the, the clock. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, a, it's a genius little test. It's, a very, it's kind of a part of the arsenal of neuropsych testing and, and often given to people with Alzheimer's um, uh, and dementia. And it was actually given very far along in my hospitalization because I was too psychotic really to engage in neuropsych testing. But um, he apparently, and again, this is all through interviews with other people and my medical records. You don't remember. I don't remember. But he sat down and he gave me a blank sheet of paper and he asked me to draw a clock. And it took me several times to get the circle right. And I um, kind of uh, draw, drew the number several to- numbers several times, something called perseveration. And um, he almost gasped when he looked down because the 12 o'clock landed exactly where the 6 o'clock should have been. So an entirely empty half clock. So the clock was empty on yes. the one side. Yes. And then the other side, you had the numbers. Oh, but you squished had them all together, squished. yeah. And yeah. so what did... That for him was an indication that um, the rule-out diagnosis at the time, which was schizoaffective disorder, didn't make sense. And that he that gave him kind of the push to kind of prod further. And at that point he did a spinal tap and sent my spinal fluid to the one place in the world testing for a newly discovered form of autoimmune encephalitis. And that's what you had. Yes. And where is the one place in the world? University of Pennsylvania. Really? Yes. Now it's, now it's a commercially available test. And if you do an autoimmune panel, that will be a part of it. But this was 2009. And at that time when I was diagnosed, I was the 217th person in the world to be diagnosed with that condition. And your brain was on fire. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, that's what my that's how my doctor described it to my parents. Brain on fire. Wow. So after you recovered, yes, uh, you spent four years learning everything you could about your illness, and in the process, you learned about this groundbreaking study called "Being Sane in Insane Places," published in 1973. Yes. And so you were intrigued by this. So why why was the study important, and what about it grabbed you? So you know, I, after I wrote "Brain on Fire," I kind of started to 
think about, you know, my place in this history. And I, there were a lot of things I didn't get to interrogate in Brain on Fire that were still bothering me. And this was mostly through people emailing me and contacting me. And I had a lot of people who read my book and got diagnoses. Those were the happy emails, right? But there was also another type of email coming from people who were within the mental health sphere, had the same symptoms that I did, um, kind of appeared the same way that I did they didn't have autoimmune encephalitis. They had a mental health, mental illness diagnosis and they felt lost. They felt unseen. They felt unheard. They felt in some ways harmed, um, by their care. And, and they felt there was a lot of desperation and need. And I was surprised and I thought, you know, what, what is, what are the differences between us? And I had kind of, um, in many ways in, you know, various interviews that I have done kind of upheld this difference between what I went through and what they went through, you know, because of this clock test and this intervention, we thought, well, this was a neurological disease and they're psychiatric. We're totally different. And as I started to interrogate the history and kind of understand where we are now, I realized we're not different. I mean, I was lucky enough to be alive during a time where they found the cause of my illness. Had I been sick even a few years before, I would likely be living with a serious mental illness diagnosis. So it kind of, I started, I started asking the question of what is mental illness? Mm -hmm. And uh, at one point I was lecturing widely. Anyone who would talk, if you had ears, I'm talking to you about this. I wanted everyone to hear what had happened. And I was at a psychiatric hospital in North Carolina. And while I was there, uh, I was talking about my condition and what happened. And a doctor came up to me afterwards and said, um, there's a young woman here who sounds a lot like you. And I remember walking through the halls of the hospital. They'd given me a tour and thinking, is she the one? Is she the one? You know, is she, who is this person? You know, and I found out two weeks later that she um, did, in fact, have what I had. And she was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia for two years, uh, whereas I was misdiagnosed for one month. And I followed her um, through her doctor, her care. And unfortunately, she would not recover as I had. She would remain the rest of her life as a permanent child. And so I, that, to me, raised the stakes of these questions of what is mental illness, really. So the study... Yeah. So at that, around that time, right. uh, when I, so these questions are percolating, right? And I went out to eat with, um, two neuroscientists, uh, from a kind of Harvard and, and I was telling them the story of this woman who I started to call my mirror image, this, this woman of like who I could have been. Mm-hmm. That's why I kind of thought of her. And, um, you know, one of them turned to me and said, you know, you, you're kind of like a modern day pseudo patient. And I had no idea what she meant by that. But um, when I, I, I asked her, what do, you, what, do you, what do you mean by that? She said, well, there was this study done in the 70s where these pseudo patients, these volunteers went undercover in psychiatric hospitals and they were kind of testing the nature of diagnosis. Would these doctors be able to expose them as fakers? And um, they, they didn't. They weren't able to. And they, and they kind of showed the limitations of the field. And she's like, you're kind of doing the same thing today. And that was fascinating to me. So I remember that night I Googled the study and read it for the first time. And this study was a big deal. Oh, yeah. How big a deal? I mean, I don't think you can really underestimate or overestimate the, um, the effect that this study had. So it's published in Science, which is the kind of one of the premier academic journals um, in the world. And it's a generalist journal. You know, it's, it was, it's, it has, a, you know, very kind of serious minded, high minded scientific studies in there from everything from archaeology to mathematics, you know. So 
so it's surrounded by these kind of very important studies that had this effect of kind of um, making this study seem extremely valid and legitimate, and you know, mm-hmm. which which everyone interpreted at the same time at that time, um, and. The premise of the study was that these eight people went undercover in these psychiatric hospitals and they only presented with one symptom. And what was that? I hear a voice that says thud, empty, or hollow. Just that. So they would go to a doctor and say, I'm hearing a voice that says thud. And just based on that, they were all diagnosed with serious mental illness. And in fact, in all, in all, in all cases but one with schizophrenia. So it became this kind of real embarrassment to the field of psychiatry at the time. And it very much kind of cemented the public opinion that, that psychiatry didn't really know what it was doing. It was, it was really, um, you can't really overestimate what that effect had at the time. Wow. So the person who did the study was David Rosenhaus. Yes. All right. So he died in 2012. Um, before you began researching yes. the book. So you've never had a chance to meet David. No. But being the investigative journalist you are, not a problem. Because in this book, you describe how you left no stone unturned in your search to learn who he was. Yeah. So what did you learn? Who was David Rosenhan? You know, you, you <laughs> see glimmers of who he is in the in that piece, in the, in the actual study on being sane and in insane places. It's beautifully written. I mean, it opens with this line, if sanity and insanity exist, how shall we know them? I mean, it's beautifully intoned. And um, the rest of the paper reads like fiction uh, in, in many ways. I mean, think about you have these people, these volunteers in psychiatric hospitals describing their experiences. You would never imagine that you'd read anything that would be so juicy in the right. academic journal. Right. And, you know, he has these great flourishes throughout and his, he's so descriptive. And he even my, one of my favorite parts of the study is this kind of winking at the audience when he um, tells one, one, one institution comes to him, one doctor says, this would never happen our, at our institution we would immediately expose these pseudo patients as fakers. So um, David Rosenhan called his bluff and said, okay, over the next three month period, I'm going to send pseudo patients and you tell me who they are. So the doctor reported that um, his, he and his staff found 41 people with high probability that were pseudo patients. Okay. The result was that David Rosenhan actually had not sent one person. Wow. So those were, there are so many moments like these kind of great winking. So I was like, who is this mind? Who is this guy? And so that led me on an odyssey that landed me at your doorstep and, um, and his son, Jack's doorstep. And I got access to his unpublished book and his diary entries and his reams of kind of letters and correspondences. And I got to know this person who I would never meet, but through his writing and I, he came alive for me in many ways. And, and how you, who is David is such a question most people don't really know how to answer. He was yeah. a complicated man. He was a seductive man. He had this baritone Orson Welles type voice. Have you heard his voice? I yeah. have. I, I, um, there, there are videos of him and he was interviewed, you know, this study made him an academic celebrity. So he's interviewed widely, but I also, um, one of his friends kept, um, uh, actually recorded some of his lectures. So he he has this, he opens with, you know, there are some, some things will be black, some things will be white, but there will be a lot of shades of gray, which seems very David Rosenhan kind Got of it. ism. And, um, 
and so through these things that he left behind, I started to become very much obsessed with this David Rosenhan character and, and who he was and why he decided to do this study and how he convinced seven other people to do this. Interesting. Well, before we get more into that part of the book, let's, let's just talk a bit about mental illness and, and the field of psychiatry. So the first two chapters of this book, I just, I just was just wonderful to read. And it was just an eye opener for me because you recap the history of the treatment of the mentally ill. It was just absolutely fascinating. Um, and one of the people you talk about, I've heard the name and I think all of us have probably heard the name. Yes. But I did not know the story. And that was Nellie Bly. Yes. So who was Nellie Bly and why should we even care? Nellie Bly is my, one of my favorite journalists. Uh, she's a, a sob sister. This was a epithet aimed at female journalists, um, especially, you know, in the 19th century, who very few female journalists, but they would always get the sob stories, the kind of less legitimate stories. And so she was a sob sister. They kind of, kind of claimed it as a, a point of pride. But at 24 years old, Nellie Bly was starting out in her, as in, in her career at the, uh, in New York and a New York tabloid, the New York world asked her to go undercover at a psychiatric hospital, um, on, called Blackwell Island. And it's, it's, was one of the most notorious asylums in the country. And in fact, it was so notorious that, that Charles Dickens even visited the, uh, the, um, asylum and wanted out immediately. He wanted off the grounds. Wow. Um, and so Nellie Bly willingly at this, you know, 24 years old knew what she was getting into because, because it was so notorious, but she went undercover as a patient. She had to convince a doctor, a judge, et cetera, to get committed and put on this island. And she describes these, this, these horrendous scenes. At one point, when she gets there, she's thrown into a bathtub immediately. And the bathtub, they basically pour water at her, on her in quick succession to the point where it's almost like waterboarding. And in that bathtub is filled with human waste, dead vermin. She is, she is subjected to all manners of just indignities. I mean, even going to the bathroom was a horrendous experience during that time. And, you know, there are people there who she claimed, she said, they were no crazier than I. There was one woman who was in there because she didn't speak English. She spoke German. And she just, she described it as a, a human rat trap. Once you're in, you can't get out. And in fact, she wasn't incorrect. At the time, I think people spend an average about 20 years on that island when they were committed. So she gets in and she immediately says, I want, I want out of here. I don't want to be here, just like Charles Dickens. Um, and, but the problem was, how do you get out? So what happened was about nine days in, a lawyer from the, from the, uh, newspaper actually had to go there on her, to get her out, to get her free, to save her from the, from the asylum. And it was so interesting. She describes on the transport ferry back to Manhattan, she describes thinking about all those women she left behind. And that really, to mm -hmm. me, really hit, struck a nerve mm -hmm. for me. And, you know, she did a lot with, with, with her experience there. She wrote two-part expose that shocked the world. I mean, it was syndicated and had a huge effect. I think eight, $800,000 then was allocated to improve mental health services, basically, whatever was passing for mental health services at the time. But unfortunately, it was whack-a-mole situation because um, the asylum was actually eventually shut down shortly after her experience there, but it moved to another island called Ward's Island. Oh, my God. So it, was, it didn't actually fix the problem. Wow. Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly. Wow. Um, I, I found your recounting of how the medical profession has come to understand 
or better yet, misunderstand um, mental illness. And, yeah. and it was just frightening. I mean, some of the treatments you describe in the book are just mind-boggling. Yeah. Can you give some examples? Of yeah. So, you know, it's I, I, I came <clears throat> to this project thinking that biological understanding of mental illness will save us all, right? Just like it saved me, right? But when I started to go back through the history, you realize that the narrative is, is a lot darker. You know, there were, um, uh, there were doctors who believed that the focal point of mental illness was um, infection. So they would remove organs, teeth, in trying to locate that infection and ultimately killing patients. There were things called tranquilizing chairs, which um, Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, created. He was a psychiatrist. And um, you, the tranquilizing chair was like very false advertising. It was not tranquilizing at all. It was a wooden box placed over your head and you were tied to a chair, basically restrained to a chair. And you would sit there for hours, if not days, and to the point where they had a hole the, uh, underneath where you sat so you could relieve yourself um, during long periods of these tranquilizing. And this was supposed to do what? This was supposed to, uh, to relax excitable nerves. I don't think it did a good job of oh doing God. that. Wow. I mean, there, there, was a, there was another kind of theory that you could shock the crazy out of someone. So there were, they designed these baths of surprise that would actually, you would walk out onto a floor and the floor would just open up and you would fall into a bath. And these are psychiatrists or these were doctors, medical, you know, these were, this was the thinking that if we were, if we can interrogate the body, if we can get this out of the, you know, if your body is the source of mental illness, then we have to just whip it out of you. And that was not effective, obviously. And it resulted in a lot of abuse and death. God, spinning chairs, spinning chairs, the spinning chairs is probably one of the more horrifying thoughts. So these were, um, to induce vertigo again, to do something to the, I don't know, even understand where the theorizing there is, but, um, these chairs would spin so fast you'd vomit and defecate at the same time. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, shock treatment. Yeah. Right. So there's a history of that, but that's being used even today though, right? Well, you know, that it's in shock, that, shock therapy, which is now called electroconvulsive convulsive right. therapy. I mean, it, it's a very different thing that was going on when David Rosenham was writing this paper and when I, you know, in the 60s and 70s. It's a different thing now. And I think, you know, it's still very controversial. You talk right. to some people and they think it's a crime against humanity. But if you talk to people, other people, they, it helps them a lot. So, you know, it's, it. it's, it, but it's a different thing. And, you know, people are sedated. Right. Kind of an interesting All dilemma right. too. So back to the book. You write, <clears throat> in February 1969, David Lurie, walked into the intake room at an unspecified hospital in Pennsylvania and set off a metaphorical bomb. He finally proved what so many people had long suspected. Psychiatry had too much power and didn't know what the hell to do with it. I love her writing. So talk to us about David Laurie and his undercover stay in a hospital in Pennsylvania. So I quickly, when I got access to these files, uh, I quickly learned out that learned that uh, he had pseudonyms for each of these undercover David patients. Rosenhan. David Rosenhan. Uh-huh. Uh, one of those pseudonyms was David Lurie, and I learned quickly that David Lurie was David Rosenhan himself. And I found um, diary entries that chronicled his nine-day stay at Haverford State Hospital. Um, and that is some of my favorite, those are some of the favorite things that I found. I mean, uh, David was the one who, David Rosenhan was the one who went in initially and he, it started as teaching exercise because his students at Swarthmore, which is where he started, had this idea that 
the course he was teaching in abnormal psychology was limited. They actually wanted to see, in their words, real madness up close. So David said to them and kind of to brush them off, well, why don't you go do a hospital and go undercover and see one? And the kid said, okay. And he kind of walked it back a bit and thought, well, is this a good idea? And so he decided, let me go first. And this is where the whole idea for the study came. And so he took on the pseudonym David Lurie. He, you know, dressed a little bit shabbier than normal, but, you know, otherwise maintained who he was. He, um, he wasn't, no, he was no longer a psychology professor. He became an economist and he had, you know, his wife Molly came and came with him to the hospital and he delivered this. So she was in on it. She was in on it. He had to convince right. her she didn't want him, you know, because this was a scary time. I mean, if you can imagine, right. this was one floor of the cuckoo's nest time. This was snake pit. This right. was, you know, one expose after another of how the horrors of your local insane asylum, right? And so the fact that he got his wife to not only agree for him to do that, but at one point um, they realized that for him to go into the hospital, she would actually have to commit him thereby effectively losing many of his rights in the process. And she balked at that. You know, he writes about this in his unpublished book. She's like, no way am I doing that. But David had this kind of seductive quality. He was able to get people to do things. And um, somehow he, he got his wife to sign on that dotted line. So that was, that was phenomenal. It was kind of very fascinating to see that he himself was, was he had, you know, really put his own kind of life on the line for this. So tell us about his stay. How long was he in there? So he's in for nine days and Uh it's so evocative. His, um, the bulk of the study is chronicles his experience though. It's kind of couched as being generally pseudo patients. It's mostly his experience. Um, and he describes, I mean, there was kind of small and big indignities, right? I mean, of course the number one indignity is, the diagnosis itself and how it shades the doctor's view of him. But he describes how even when he was first committed and a nurse, um, you know, was doing the admitting, admitting process, she made him strip and she kept the door wide open because the minute he got a mental illness diagnosis, he was no longer a human. He was no longer, you know, <clears throat> allowed human decency. Right. Right. He described how there were no doors on the bathroom stalls. He described how the food, and he said he, he could eat almost anything, but the food was inedible. And, you know, there was this hierarchy of, of who people kind of, of how people related to each other. And basically the staff really didn't interact with the patients. And he, one of my favorite parts of this is in chronicled in his diary entry and his unpublished book is he was sitting writing. And again, you know, these, they, they saw this writing as writing behavior, right? But at one point he was journaling, he was journaling, right? And, and this actually showed up in medical records as writing behavior, you know, further side right. of the diagnosis. Um, and so he's sitting there writing and attendant, sits down next to him. It's the first time someone sits down and looks at him in the eye and they have this whole conversation where the attendants going through every single person on the ward, going through the doctors, going through the patients. It's this wonderful conversation. And this is his third day in at that point. And he was just thirsty. He was so like ready for real right. human interaction. And he's, it's about an hour goes by. He's in heaven. Someone's finally talking to him. He's like, maybe this place isn't so bad. And at one point the nurse, the nurses kind of call this attendant into their cage. They were kind of in a nurse's cage and they're laughing. And David can't understand what's so funny about this situation. What's so funny about a, a, you know, a middle-aged man in the psychiatric hospital. The next day he approaches the same attendant and he totally rebuffed and he, he, he finds himself shrinking away from it and he doesn't kind of stand up for himself. 
And he describes how taking on the kind of identity of a patient and he goes to the bathroom and he splashes water on his face and he realizes this attendant thought I was a psychiatrist. That's why he was talking to me. You know, even though he had some rumpled clothing, he still was wearing the kind of garb of an intellectual and he was mistaken as such. And that was the only reason why he was, he was talked to. And the minute that the nurses broke that shroud, you know, he was completely treated differently. So it was really interesting. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. So David successfully goes undercover and he's able to get out after yeah. nine days, right? Yes. So, so then he decides eventually he's going to go do this, make this a study. Yes. And to do this, it's got to be more than one person. Right. So he ends up with that writing about these eight pseudo pages. Yes. Right. All right. Now, your plan, so we come to the book now, is mm-hmm. to track down the pseudo patients. Yes. And then you write a book about how their experiences in the mental hospitals impacted their lives. Absolutely. What was it like afterwards, right? Exactly. But the focus of your book changed. Yes. Why was that? Well, there's three meanings <clears throat> of the great pretender. That's for sure. Um, uh, you know, the first two, you know, my illness and its relationship, the actual very obvious, he pretended to be ill. And then there's a third meaning, which started to um, emerge the deeper I started to dive into this study. My first, the first name of this book that I sold, because on, um, on when you write nonfiction, you, you sell based on proposal, on ideas. So it's basically like, oh, you'll go and write this and figure out what the story is really about. But my first title was Committed. Uh, and it was going to be a straight, yeah, I mean, pretty good, right? <laughs> it was a different story though. Like you said, it was going to, my goal was to find these people or find their families and find out how this, how did this change your life? And also decide how much have we changed since then? How much has, you know, progressed? How much has regressed since then? Problem was I kept butting in, I kept running into problems. Um, and at first they seemed minor, um, there were inconsistencies with some of the data. Um, there were some issues with, um, you know, some facts that didn't seem right. And then, um, there were some larger looming questions. For example, um, why was he so careful about keeping the identities of the pseudo patients, you know, obscured? So in, even in his private notes, he's like, obsessive about maintaining, you know, secrecy there. And I thought that's strange. And then there was the question of, he had written this book that I had access to and love and never, never actually released it. He had a, a, he had a book deal with a major publisher. He had a nice advance, you know, it would have cemented his place. It was all, I mean, his place was already, you know, so Mm -hmm. high, but it would have cemented his place among the greats. Why didn't he why didn't he, why didn't he hand it in? And he was ultimately sued by the publisher when he didn't. So this was a decision not to release this book. I also thought, you know, you know, why did he never really publish on this topic again? He kind of put it behind him in a serious way in 1973. And at that point he was hired at Stanford mainly because of the strength of this work. Why not continue down this path? 
So these were questions that were percolating and that started to um, become loom larger and larger as I started having issues finding right. those other seven people. Because yeah, the thriller part of The Great Pretender is your search right. for the pseudopit. And it's really, it's just, I mean, like the tension, I was reading it, is she there, is she there? Um, and you document all manner of the, these twists and turns to try to track people down. And, and by the way, for those of you who intend to read the book, and everyone should, um, if you ever want to know how a top-notch investigative journalist does her investigating, Read about her quest to find these patients. Uh, it's really great stuff. Can you give us an example maybe of one of your kind of investigative journeys, just very briefly? I mean, oh, briefly. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the funny ones. <laughs> I'll be brief. Yeah. But, um, but the kind of the funnier ones. I, I mean, I, this book took me all over the country. I mean, this was, I, this was my home base here um, in Palo Alto, actually, specifically. But um, I, I found myself in England. I found myself all over the country. And at one point, I found myself in Buffalo, New York. Okay. And I had asked this, I had found these files that David had interacted with another psychiatrist, and I wanted to learn more. So I board this flight very early from New York City to, to Buffalo, and I, he opened the place up early for me. It was all dark. I go down to the kind of stacks, the archives. I find what I'm looking for. I'm about to leave. The sun's up now. And I start looking around, and I realize that there are like Loch Ness monster pictures and shrunken heads and organs in jars. And I, I thought, where am I? And I was at this place called the Center for Inquiry, which basically, in, like, it, it, it will, they will investigate paranormal activity. I have no idea how David's files got here. But they are, their goal is if, if you say, I saw, you know, Bigfoot, they will actually go out and say, no, you didn't. This was something else. So they're, they're skeptics. Anyway, I didn't know where I was. And then all of a sudden, I realized I can't believe I'm in this strange place. So this is kind of one example of the many strange places this book has taken wow. me. So bottom line, you conclude that David Rosenhand was the great pretender, right? Um, you uncovered plenty of information and some clues that confirmed for you that much of what he wrote about the experiences of the pseudo-patients, it may have been made up, and that maybe as many as five of them maybe really didn't even exist. So what was your first reaction when you're arriving at this conclusion now? You know, it, this, this came to me in waves. It, it didn't come to me overnight. I mean, I right. think that, you know, the major part that, of, you know, the major part that indicated to me that something was really awry with this with this study was when I found Harry Lando, who was the footnote. He's a footnote. He wasn't the original eight, one of the original eight. Um, He's a footnote in the study. In the study. And um, I found um, he was removed because he didn't conform to the script. And I found out that David Rosenhan himself did not conform to the script. And by the script, I mean the thud, empty, hollow symptom. They all were supposed to just present with that. And I actually found David's medical records and found that he had said way more than thud, empty, hollow, that he had said he put copper pots over his ears to drown out the voices, that he was suicidal. So it was a far more kind of complex view of an illness and far more understandable that a psychiatrist would have made a diagnosis of schizophrenia. So after I found that, that really opened up my eyes. And, and then I found Harry, who, uh, the footnote, who um, he, uh, again, was removed from the study. And 
he, like all the other pseudo patients, was in for a long period of time. He was in for the average, which was 19 days. He also um, was diagnosed, diagnosed with schizophrenia, but that's where the similarities ended. He described his stay as positive. He had a wonderful time in the hospital. Hmm. He was uh, a graduate student at Stanford. He was miserable. He felt it was a competitive, stifling place. He felt un- he was in an unhappy marriage. And uh, he, when he got committed to a hospital, he like, actually found himself. And, <laughs> you know, he, he was sitting in, in a circle singing Peter, Paul, and Mary. And he flirted with the nurse. And, you know, he just he went to the beach. And one of the, one of the other patients kind of grabbed his hands and said, we should never leave. I mean, it was this magical time. And Whoa. so, but it was interesting. And it's funny. And, I, and Harry's so great. And, and, and he's a, an odd guy in a great way. And, um, and he would say that fully about himself, but what he did uncover in that experience was that maybe the conclusions of this study, which were so stark, the conclusions were a, the psychiatry didn't know what it was doing and B that these institutions were harmful, terrible places and should be closed. Maybe with Harry's experience, there could have been a more nuanced conversation. So once I found Harry and then there were other things with Harry too, where um, I found that data was definitely messed with in the paper. And that was very disconcerting because as Dave, I'm going to use Harry's words. He said, you don't mess with the data. And there was serious indication that the data was messed with in the paper. So that was, that was, that was troubling. And it was hard for me because I really, really fell in love with David Rosenhan. Um, And I, you know, we talking to you about this yesterday. I said this yesterday, uh, my husband thought I was in love with him. You know, he basically said that the, the essentially like you're obsessed with this guy. And I really felt like I knew him really well. And and when I started uncovering these things, I, I was disappointed. I was really disappointed. So do you believe that there just were not all eight? It's hard to say. I, I don't know. I keep hoping that as I'm talking about this, widely that someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and be like, I was a pseudo patient or my grandparents were pseudo patients. My parents were pseudo patients or something, you know, I, I just, but it hasn't happened. It has not happened yet. I'm still holding on to faith though. Well, well, given the importance that the world continues to place on being sane and insane places, um, you now tell us that the study could have been based on in part fraud um, and yet you don't see David Rosenhan as a bad person. I do not. Yeah. Why not? I think that a, his intentions were pure in a lot of ways. I think that he, you know, he had a family member who suffered from serious mental illness. I think he saw a lot of injustice going on in these psychiatric hospitals at the time, which was very real. I mean, he, he was, fo- he focused on real things like the idea of context and the way that it shapes the way we see diagnosis and patients and how we see people through the prism of their labels. These are real things. And I think that he did that beautifully. And, um, I think there is, I, I'm stealing a line from my own book. I think he, he danced around the truth, but he got to the truth. You know, he, he really did hit on some real things and real issues that we still contend with today. What is the truth? I don't know. I still don't know. So, but when you say he danced around the... Well, I'm, well what I'm so saying in terms of the idea of, of context and labeling right. and the experience of being a psychiatric patient and the kind of difference that is, you know, doctors see you uh, in the ways that 
they're primed to see you, you know, and that can be in many different ways, but I'm talking specifically about mental illness diagnoses. And I experienced that personally. And I've talked to many people who have experienced that too. And he so beautifully laid that out. And he also so beautifully laid out the limitations in, in psychiatric diagnosis that led to some widespread changes that were both good and bad. So he definitely hit on a lot of truths. Um, but not everything was truthful. Did he do any harm? I think so. What was the harm? I think, again, by not incorporating what Harry's experience and making a more nuanced argument, I think it helped contribute to the growing deinstitutionalization movement, which was a very stark, hardline end to a lot of institutions, which were terrible places and should have been ended. But the problem is the kind of money didn't materialize for something better. And as we know, in San Francisco, we contend with that issue with homelessness and people in our prisons and jails. So um, this study did contribute to that. Well. Um, has there been any fallout from the book? I mean, like, you know, angry psychiatrists calling you up. And, <laughs> like, one psychiatrist did walk out of one of my talks. Once, really? But not because, I don't know. He's, he's the Trump of psychiatry, so I, I was okay with it. <laughs> That's what someone described him as. Sorry. Um, so we now know we have issues about not enough beds right? We have institutions that were closed down. Um, what, what do you see happening now? Is there a trend to, and will your book, you know, you believe help, do you believe that will help kind of change things even more, like create more beds? And what do you think about, should institutions be opening up? Should people, more people be sent in involuntarily? Where are you on all of that now? I mean, you know, I think that just opening up beds and warehousing people does not work. And we've, right. we've, we've shown that time and again. That's, right. If you're not going to create a healing, benign, helpful, you know, environment where it's beyond just the kind of take your meds and get back off the street. If we're not going to help people and provide care, what are you really doing? So I think it needs to, there needs to be an overhaul. There also has to be tiered systems. I, I mean, this is not a policy book, but in terms right. of my experiences, you know, talking to people who know a lot more about this than I do, you know, th- there has to be tiered levels of care. There are some people who need acute care and who need very kind of intense care. There are some people who need longer term care and they need supportive, supportive housing. So there's kind of a wide swath of these things. Meanwhile, you know, I think that psychiatry has been kind of shunted off from the rest of medicine. And sometimes when you get a psychiatric diagnosis, that's an end stop to look for other things. I almost had that happen to me. And I think that we need to be more multidisciplinary in our approach, not just in terms of, okay, matching neurology with psychiatry, but also making sure we're having, you know, therapy applied and, you know, occupational therapy and having a social worker there, but also having an immunologist and a cardiologist. And I think having this kind of multidisciplinary approach to mental health care is extremely important for the future. So we have some questions from the audience and, and if you have more to send up, please do. And what happens is you get mesmerized with this woman and then you forget to write down your questions. So <laughs> let, let me, let me throw one out at you, Susanna. Okay. Uh, you talked a bit about the letters you received after publishing mm-hmm. Brain on Fire. What was the most surprising letter you received? That's a great, thank you for asking that question. It was one of the more, um, motivating questions for this book. Uh, a, a father wrote to me about his son who was in his thirties and, um, had a schizophrenia, I believe his diagnosis was, and spent his time in and out of hospitals and in and out of prisons and jails and off and on and off the street. And he read brain on fire and felt a lot of hope within those pages that perhaps there was something else because what was offered to him by the by psychiatrists he was seeing, psychiatrists he was seeing, was was very limited. It was basically take these medications that didn't seem to help him, and that's it. And so when he read my book, he thought maybe there's another answer. 
But then he saw me interviewed and I said in this talk that, um, I had a neurological condition. It was in my brain. I didn't have a psychiatric one that was in my you know, mind, basically making this divide again mm-hmm. and contributing to this same divide that was hurting his son and honestly could have contributed to my own death. I didn't even realize I was doing that. And so when I got that email, it was really eye-opening and, and, and definitely led me to the path of finding this study for sure. Yeah. Wow. Here's another question. Uh, my mother spent 15 plus years in state hospitals in New York in the 1960s and 70s. Is there any way to access records of patients of long shuttered public institutions? How can researchers bring the secret stories to light? Great question. And it's something I uh, encountered a lot during this time. What's horrific about it is that not only were many people kind of marginalized and, and neglected and ignored during their lifetime, but a lot of these hospitals just discarded those records when they closed, that they don't exist now either. I went to a place, a psychiatric hospital, where there was a cemetery on the grounds. But um, when they were cleaning up the grounds, they um, didn't realize it was a cemetery. And they just raised it all. And then they realized that those were headstones. So this happened repeatedly where we have forsaken the past because we didn't care about it to begin with and we don't care about it now. And I actually got very lucky during one point of my, my investigation and odyssey. Um, it led me to this very famous psychiatric hospital called Chestnut Lodge and it has a wonderful history. Um, it was a very Freudian place. Uh, and they closed and they were premier, one of the top private psychiatric hospitals in the country. And they closed and a fire hit, hit the grounds. Um, Luckily, a woman who worked there had squirreled away some of the patient records and actually allowed me to, um, she, she accessed them for me, but she saved them without her. It would have been long gone. And that was, that's true of many psychiatric hospitals and the, and the medical records within them. So she should, she's donating them now. I, 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 I've connected to her with an academic and she's donating it. So for those who are trying to find records of relatives, it's just, unfortunately, it's it's really, really hit and miss and mostly miss. And there's no law. In fact, even St. Elizabeth's, which is a federally funded psychiatric hospital, I was trying to find records and they, this is, I thought this is wild. They only kept records if the year ended in zero or five. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how you decide that arbitrarily, but... Another question. Um, Why do you think fiction has a place in scientific literature? Why is the pretender acceptable when we depend on facts for proper health care? Huh. Well, it wasn't intended to be fiction. It was intended to be fact. But I do think, I mean, to that point, I do think... Fiction and narrative and creativity and listening to stories and building sympathy slash empathy in the humanities, reading these things is important to clinical care. And I think more physicians and people who work in medicine should should read more fiction. I don't know if this doesn't answer your question, but I do believe that fiction does have a place in, in scientific yeah, literature. I, I wonder, I, I took the question to mean that if, if David Rosenhan... Uh, contrived some information yes. and it wasn't factual. Yes. You know, does that really have a place in when we're no. looking at... It doesn't. It shouldn't have been published in science if it was fictional. But I think it was, so we can't go back and just 
you know, right. and it had a huge effect. So now I think it's a, it's a teachable moment, right? We can now use that study and understand what did it get right? What did it get wrong? What were, what were its limitations? What's were its strengths? And, and how can we make sure things like that don't happen? Have you heard from science? Yes. The well, they reviewed the great pretender very nicely, really, but they did not acknowledge that they published the study. They did not. No. But it's in your book. Oh, it's all over the book. Yeah. But it was, yeah, when I was reading, I thought they're, not in one point here did, did they, they say, say that it was published within their pages. So in your research on all of this, did you determine that in their publishing the study, did they do the kind of thorough job you think they should have? Well, obviously not. But um, it was... I mean, really a fascinating area for me because I thought, how did this, that, that yeah. kept becoming up. How did this public, this study get published in science? Again, this was again, this was alongside these very scientific sounding papers. I wish I could tell you them, but they were so esoteric. I can't even remember what they were about. But this, this is this journal. This is it's, it. This yeah. Is like I mean, the, it's one of those right. really premier journals. And, um, you know, I wanted to learn about the process. Usually, and even and even in 1973, things would go through a peer review process. So I asked science. I said, you know, what what was the process? And they responded, kind of similar to a lot of psychiatric hospitals. They said to me, you know, it's, they, they first said it's an anonymous process. We can't tell you. And then I I enlisted an academic to ask them, and they told them a different story. They said we don't keep records that go that far back, which was surprising to me too. Um, so I don't know how it actually got into the pages of science. Well, I mean, my guess is if you were able to spend your time and do this work, they didn't spend the time necessary to really look at the study. Yeah. But so they were anxious, though, to publish the study. Yes. Why? You know, I think that was key. I mean, I think that it, it was them showing their bias, right? I think that they were basically putting a line in the sand saying, we don't think psychiatry is a real medical specialty. And this study was, you know, they knew it was going to be deeply embarrassing. And so I think that it showed you where, where their heads were at in terms of that, that subject. So their, their view was psychiatry. It's not a real yeah, deal. It's bunk, basically. It's, it's bunk. Wow. And David's study, in a way, supported that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's why they were anxious to put it That's out. what I think. That's my theory, again. That, right, that's just a right. theory. Do you think that the tide has turned now and people are now looking more seriously at psychiatry? I, and is that a good thing? I mean, I, th- I, I think so. I think, I think the lay public still has a lot of doubt. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of doubt in medicine, but I think there's a lot of doubt aimed at psychiatry because we're talking about the brain and the mind, mind-brain. And it's, there's so much gray there. There's a, it's very hard to find solid ground. That doesn't mean it's not a medical specialty or a scientific or attempts to be, but it's harder because there's so much unknown and we are very uncomfortable with unknown. I'm uncomfortable with unknown. I think a lot of, a lot of medicines uncomfortable with that. I think a lot of the lay public's uncomfortable with that. So, uh, you know, I think it contends with these issues definitely still. Was, was your faith shaken at all? Because I mean, you were misdiagnosed. Yeah. You could have died. Yeah. But for, you know, the doctor who said, let me just try this test. So oddly, this book strengthened my faith. I had very little faith in psychiatry before this book. With Brain on Fire, my psychiatrist would have led me down a very wrong path. So I was, I came at a place of, of pretty much my bias is very evident in this. I was kind of angry at psychiatry and distrusting and, um, I think at the end, I've met so many great people and great people in the field, and they are willing to acknowledge we're so much we don't know. And those people are the best 
doctors and they're the best thinkers. And, um, meeting some of those high-minded, really open-minded, uh, forward-thinking people um, really kind of strengthened my faith in the field and strengthened my faith in the field as it moves forward. But didn't you also meet some, let's say, arrogant I do. people in the field? I absolutely you give one did. example? I mean, didn't you? Yes. Um, this was very horrifying to me. I went out to dinner with uh, one uh, very esteemed psychiatrist and he doesn't actually, he's so esteemed. He doesn't see patients anymore. Oh, one of those. Right. Exactly. Um, and he turned to me and said, um, the drugs that we have to treat people with serious mental illness are just as effective as the drugs that treated you, which is a bald faced lie. I had, I had drugs that treated me that, um, effectively cured me. I'm not on any drugs anymore. Um, I had, you know, immune suppressants and steroids. And, and that was the end of that story. You know, many people with serious mental illness have to be on lifelong medication. And there are some serious side effects. Those right. It helps a lot of people. But, you know, there are drawbacks to some of these medications. So and to not acknowledge that is really not giving people the credit that they deserve who contend with these issues. You know, uh, so I was pretty disgusted by that. And I've and I encountered that a few times. Did you say anything to him? Yes. <laughs> I got very, you know, defensive and I got a little aggressive because I thought that that was absurd. Wow. Good for you. Thank you. Welcome. I don't think he liked it very much, uh, but. <laughs> um, if you had known beforehand that, you know, the study maybe was a little iffy and maybe pseudo patients, maybe some were maybe made up, would you have still written the book? Yes. About this? Why? I think it's important. I think it's important that we know. I think it's um, a way forward. I think in, it, it, I love that my, my doctor who actually saved my life um, says to his residents, he has this quote that I love. It says, um, you have to look back to see the future. And I think that this allowed me and hopefully the readers to look backwards in the attempt as we attempt to move forward. And you can't move forward on a rotten foundation. So um, and I also just I'm so grateful for people like you <laughs> who've entered my life. And, and I've, it's built, you know, like Jack and Florence and all these amazing people who have entered my life just selfishly. I'm very grateful for this, for David and this book. It's, it's, it's enriched my life so many times over that I would never, I, I would always have wanted to write this right. book. The, the, the whole world of, and it's, to me, it's a very, it's a fascinating world and a scary world of mental illness, mental health. I've had to deal with it in terms of when I was on the bench, yes. handling cases where people were in uh, locked units and wanted to get out. And in California, you go before a judge. Uh, if the doctor says, no, you're not ready to leave to make your case basically about it. So it's been, you know, a fascinating field to me. And, and it's one that, um, I just think so much is unknown. So I, I have a question and man, I don't, you just had a set of twins, yes. right? And how old are they now? They're 10 months. All right. So looking ahead, uh, yeah. would you want either or both of your children to go into the field of psychiatry? Whoa. Would you? You know what? I've met a lot of very young people getting into the field now, especially on the research side. And they're so excited. Really? Yes. And they're so galvanized and they're so earnest in a lot of ways. And they really want to, they want to tackle these big issues and these big questions. And they're not afraid of not knowing. In fact, that excites them. This book, the fact that I point out that we don't know so much actually excites them. So yes, I would. You would? Yeah. 
And, and when you say, you know, there, I think it's a very worthwhile, yeah? worthwhile cause. Exciting about the big issues, you yeah. know, the big, so such as what like, is mental illness, but how can we ever answer that? I, it's in, one of these impossible questions that we have to keep interrogating because I'm here today because someone was asking that question. Wow. Wow. So I see we don't have any more questions and I'm, we're going to bring our conversation to a close. Uh, I usually have a final question, but I decided after reading your book that what I would like to do is I'd like to close this conversation um, with this passage it, that closes your book. And I, I'd love for you to read it for us. And let me tell you why. One is because I, it leaves us with hope about this big issue concerning mental illness. And that passage just reveals how fabulous a writer you are. So if you wouldn't mind, it's the last... Okay, there we go. I think... The last... Pa- yeah. All right. Okay. I know all too well that I am one of the lucky ones. My story is a bright and shining example of what can happen when cutting-edge neuroscience meets thoughtful doctoring in the most opportune conditions. More than piles of data or years of careful research, stories make us believe. And belief is the pedestal on which great medicine stands. I am still optimistic. I am aware of all of the arrogance, incompetence, and failure. But I still believe that psychiatry and the whole of medicine will one day be deserving of my faith. I believe... I believe, I believe. Wow. Wow. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, sweetie. Our thanks, our thanks to Susanna Cahalan, journalist and author of the new book, The Great Pretender, The Undercover Mission That Changed Our Understanding of Madness. I am Judge Ladaris Cordell, and now this Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. Thank you all. Thank you.